This morning we continue our series on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're in the intensely practical back half of the letter where Paul is giving us all kinds of instruction on how to live a life worthy of this calling we've received, chapter 4, verse 1. And this morning his focus turns to the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Verse 15, chapter 5. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit, speaking to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music from your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks to God the Father for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you who inspired Paul in the writing of this letter, you who fill hearts, regenerate dead souls, set apart, sanctify, grow us in Christ, do a work through this very word. Do a work in us. Cause us to be filled up to overflowing, that Jesus would be magnified. We pray in his name. Amen. We start with spiritual power. When Jesus was crucified, his disciples, every single one of them, was devastated. Not a single follower of Jesus said to another, hey guys, don't worry about this. Jesus said this would happen. We just need to wait. We'll be okay. Every single one of them despaired and hid in fear, lest the authorities come looking for the friends of Jesus and do the same thing to them that they did to him. But when Jesus appeared, risen from the dead, he assured them that his death had been foretold by the prophets, that the plan of salvation was exactly unfolding as it needed to. And then he said... At the end of Luke's gospel, stay in Jerusalem until you have been clothed with power from on high. And what he had in mind happened and is described in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit descended on the, uh, the closest disciples of Jesus in power, in visible flames of tongue, uh, tongues of fire, and filled them with the Spirit for the first time, enabling them to speak in all kinds of languages to the nation that had been gathered for the Feast of Pentecost in the city, and giving them a boldness to proclaim the risen Savior Jesus without fear of what the consequences would involve. If you're a Christian, isn't Something like this kind of powerful spiritual experience, what you want, what you've asked for to strengthen your faith, to affirm that the things you believe are true, and, and, and don't you want something like this? And maybe God might throw in some cool supernatural abilities because what we read in the book of Acts amazes us. And if you're not a Christian, if you're not a follower of Jesus here this morning, haven't you had this thought? That if God just appeared to you, 
If he did something undeniably supernatural, then you'd believe. Then you'd move off from this resistance to faith and jump in wholeheartedly. This isn't just an idea to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, this is a command. It's not optional. We just need to make sure that what we want in spiritual power is what the Bible describes, not what some movie dramatizes in terms of spiritual experience, not what some televangelist falsely promises in spiritual experience, but what the Bible says. I've heard some people say over the years, and I'm glad for this, we need to hear more about the Holy Spirit. Maybe we need a sermon series. And part of my answer always is, absolutely, that's a great idea. But part of my answer also, I believe, has to be, I'm not sure the right balance is what you have in mind. And if I could quote the great warrior Inigo Montoya, I do not think it means what you think it means. Let's be careful. Here's why I say that. First, because the Holy Spirit's role is as a spotlight. You've heard me say this in the past if you've been around GRC. The Holy Spirit's role is as a spotlight pointing to Jesus. The Holy Spirit does not want more attention for himself. He wants more attention for Jesus. That's consistent. Secondly, the pattern of the New Testament keeps the focus on the Father and the Son. Let me give you an extended example from John's Gospel. What we call the, a Jesus' high priestly prayer is on the night before he's crucified. He's gathered in the upper room where he establishes the Lord's Supper with his disciples, and he's praying. And uh, in John 17, this is what Jesus prays. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. And then he says, now this is eternal life, that they know you, the one only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. The Holy Spirit is not off in some corner in heaven saying, Jesus, where's the love? (laughs) Jesus, you are so Presbyterian, forgetting about me. You know, the Holy Spirit's not at all coveting the attention the Son is giving to the Father over and over and over. That's the focus of the New Testament. Now, earlier in John chapter 14, Jesus does include the Holy Spirit several times, but I want you to listen to the context when he does. John 14, verse 16, I will ask the Father, there's that orientation again, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. Jesus is saying, when I leave, I'm going to ask God, the Father, to give you another of the same kind to take my place because I won't be here, but you will be not only with my people, but you will be in my people. It's another advocate, not something new. Down in John 15, verse 26, when the advocate comes, speaking of the Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, emphasis there, he will testify about me. And back in uh, chapter 14, I skipped, verse 26, the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, there's the Father and the Son's primacy, 
He will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Here's what Jesus is saying when he mentions the Holy Spirit, that the Spirit has a one-track mind. The Spirit has a laser-focused job description among the people of God. He is always saying, look at Jesus. Remember what Jesus has said. Remember what Jesus has accomplished for you in his living, dying, and rising. That's what the Spirit's job is. When we say we need more Holy Spirit, we need to be careful to long for what Jesus himself meant when he said, I'll send him, and he will testify about me. Years ago, not that long ago, maybe five or six, a woman who had been uh, just recently attending our church was waiting after the service to talk to me. And she was waiting because she was so excited to share with me this simple statement. Now, she came from a Pentecostal background. I, I knew something about her. And if, if you know a Pentecostal church, in a Pentecostal church, you do not miss the Holy Spirit. The work, and, the work of the Holy Spirit and, and talk of the Holy Spirit is always front and center. She came, she came from this background, and she was waiting to tell me this simple statement. Pastor, I love being here. This is such a spirit-filled church. And I was so encouraged in knowing where she came from. Maybe knowing some of her comfort zone, some of her expectations of what church involves. And, and I knew she did not say that because many of you were dancing in the aisles. I don't know what you do at weddings, but you're not good dancers on Sunday morning. She didn't say that because we were speaking in tongues. She didn't say that because we were evidencing some sort of mystical, spiritual experience. I knew she said it because she heard from the people of God and from the Word of God, Jesus being exalted in His perfect life, in His substitute death, and in His triumphant victory over sin and death, all evidence of the power of the Spirit at work among God's people. That leads us to the question of what we're filled with. Remember, we're in Ephesians, Paul writing to Christians in the city of Ephesus, and Ephesus was known as a center of worship of the Greek god Dionysus. He was the god of wine and fertility, and celebrations in honor of Dionysus always involved lots of wine because the worshipers believed that intoxication would more easily enable Dionysus to take control of them. That's what they wanted. So when Paul writes in verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. In the context, it wouldn't be a stretch to hear him saying this, if I could paraphrase. Do not be filled with the spirit of Dionysus through wine. Instead, be filled with the real and living God by his spirit through faith. Don't do what people all around you are doing. Be countercultural. Here's the biblical principle. What fills you controls you. Real simple. 
What fills you controls you. A few examples all from the book of Acts. Stephen, one of the first deacons, Acts 6 verse 5 describes Stephen as a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. They go hand in hand. Later on in Acts 11, Barnabas is described as a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Don't read into the order there. But this is what Peter says to Ananias in Acts chapter 5. In great contrast, he says, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to whom? The Holy Spirit. What fills you controls you. The question is, what is filling your heart? What is exerting an undue, not of God influence over your life? Paul is very deliberate in setting up this contrast between wine and spirit. And by the way, wine is not bad in and of itself. In the Bible, wine is consistently used as a description or as an example of God's abundance in blessing his people. New wine will flow from the hills. Wine is not bad. Excessive consumption of wine, which fills you up, ends up controlling you. That's what Paul is warning against. He's very deliberate in setting up this contrast between wine and spirit. Back in Acts chapter 2, when the apostles are filled with the Spirit for the very first time, they start speaking in tongues, they start declaring the praises of the risen Savior Jesus. Some in the crowd have this immediate reaction. These people are drunk. And Peter's immediate response when he starts to preach is to say, no, we're not drunk. (laughs) It's only nine in the morning, he says, as if drunks don't drink in the morning. Um, But that's his way to refute what's going on here. What it leads us to ask is, what is similar between drunkenness and spirit filling that the people wrongly but came to that conclusion? And what's dissimilar? What's different? A few thoughts. First, Paul says that getting drunk leads to debauchery. It's a word we don't use often in English, but in the original Greek of the New Testament, it's the same root word that was used to describe the prodigal son. Remember that story? The younger son asks for his inheritance from the, the father, pretty much saying, I wish you were dead so I could have half of what you own and enjoy it for myself now rather than waiting. And Luke chapter 15 tells us that he went off and squandered his wealth in wild, debauched living. Same word. He wasted his inheritance. He threw away his life. That fits the idea of our phrase today, getting wasted, getting drunk. When you're drunk... You waste energy. You, you, you waste a. Um, you, you can't control yourself. You can't even walk in a straight line. It's the opposite of what we see in an Olympic gymnast. A guy on hanging rings, swinging in the air, drops down into an iron cross. I shake my head every time I see that. I can hardly do this standing here without moving like he's doing in the air. Or a woman flipping 
and landing on a four-inch wide beam without a wobble. Self-control of the body. Well, what spiritual balance? Galatians chapter 5, written by Paul, tells us that the fruit of the Spirit, what the Spirit naturally produces in the life of a believer in Jesus Christ, the fruit of the Spirit includes self-control over your words, over your appetites for food, sex, money, power, over your emotions. We might say especially how you react to disappointment or conflict or suffering or persecution. Second dynamic that's different is when you're drunk, one of the things you waste is time. You waste opportunity. You can be doing something far more productive, not only in the moment, but the morning after when you can't do a single thing. But the Spirit-filled Christian, we saw this last week, makes the most of every opportunity, verse 16, redeems the time, invests it in the interests of eternity for the king. Third contrast is when you're drunk, people can get you to do things, stupid things, dumb things, funny things, supposedly. But when you're spirit-filled, you're not easily influenced by everything around you. You're sober-minded spiritually, which enables you to discern the difference between living unwisely versus wisely, verse 15. Figuring out what's good because the days are evil, verse 16. Discerning what the Lord's will is, verse 17. And the last contrast I'll share is that alcohol dulls the senses. And sometimes that's precisely why people drink to excess, to dull reality, to, to cope with the pain of what's going on in life, to make it hurt less, to not have to face the difficult conversation or, or the painful relationship. Drunkenness, by the way, is not the only excess that can fill you up. That happens to be Paul's uh, primary example in this context. But you can turn to porn to fill you up and cause you to escape. You can turn to retail therapy. What's wrong with a little shopping? But if you're obsessing about that new dress, flipping through catalogs, spending all afternoon at the mall looking for just the right shoes, are you filling yourself up and escaping? You can binge watch. You can overeat. All of these appetites driven to excess sometimes are pursued to escape from, maybe ironically, the pile of bills. Not so ironically, your messed up marriage. Or the nagging thought, maybe from the devil, that you are insignificant, unlovable, a nobody, a loser, a failure. None of which should surprise us because, verse 16, the days are evil. But, in contrast, being spirit-filled involves what Paul prayed for back in chapter 1. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. I pray that you might see reality as God has laid it out. 
who he is, how you are to respond to the world around you. The Holy Spirit enables this spiritual eyesight to realize, to see that God and his promises are greater than any brokenness you're facing, are greater than the days are evil all around you, are greater than the pain of what you're going through in life right now. The Spirit gives you courage to face life, not to hide from it and escape from it. If that's an example of differences between the two, what might we think led the the crowd in Acts chapter 2 to confuse spirit-filling, which is what, what actually did happen with drunkenness? Here's some thoughts. Maybe behavior so countercultural, it seems crazy. Why do people do that? Maybe an identity so strongly secure on a solid rock that you don't care what other people think. That strengthens you to receive criticism and accept failure and rejection, which will come in real life, and emboldens you to proclaim Christ even to the point of death. What fills your heart? What stirs your passions? What occupies your mind? What gets priority in your calendar and on your credit card statement? Paul is warning us here against any influence other than Christ and his spirit that would fill you and therefore control you. That's why he prayed back in chapter 3, starting in verse 16, I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. What is he saying here? I want you to be so filled up that you are always L-U-I, living under the influence of the king. Leads us lastly to ask some very practical questions. When Paul commands, be filled with the Spirit, he explains what that involves with five key words. And in the grammar of the original Greek, we see that these are subordinate words. They fall under, uh, nested under the main command. They, They support, they explain what he means by be filled with the Spirit. They're not separate thoughts. And these are the five key words he uses to explain what it means to look like a spirit-filled Christian. Speaking to one another, verse 19. Singing and making music, also in verse 19. Giving thanks and then submitting. All five explain what it means to live a spirit-filled life. I'm going to treat the first three together. Um, And we'll talk about submitting next week. That should be fun. Um, Let's see if attendance goes down, not because of Memorial Day weekend. Verse 19 shows us there's a horizontal person-to-person as well as a vertical dimension to worship. Paul's not saying that we should praise each other, of course. He's not saying that. But as we praise God vertically, there's a natural overflow effect to one another. Sometimes I hear criticism of a song because it's quote-unquote man-centered. It's not 
talking to God. It's not about God enough. The only problem with that criticism is that the inspired songbook of the Bible, 150 psalms in the middle of your Bible, often fail that test. Take Psalm 95 as an example. It starts this way. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. If I were an English teacher, I would say, what person is this? We're talking second person, let us, um, I think that's correct, and um, we're talking about God in the third person. Let us, people, I'm talking to you, we're talking to one another, we're worshiping by addressing each other, let us come before him, talking about God, trusting that he's overhearing us with thanksgiving. And if you flip, this would be a great exercise this afternoon, at home, flip through a number of psalms and pay attention. So many of them do the same, sometimes shifting back and forth in the same psalm. Not a single verse in Psalm 95 addresses God. No one would argue that it's biblical worship to use Psalm 95. Other songs flip back and forth. They talk to one another, the people of God, and they address God himself. And when they talk to one another, sometimes it's intended for the listening world to eavesdrop on who this great God is and what he has done in salvation. So again, when we read, be filled with the Spirit, we want to know how. Tell me how I can have a deeper spiritual experience with God. How can I have more of God? And if you want intensely practical, undeniable application from this passage in this sermon, here it is. Just one thing I'm going to highlight of these five elements, but the first three go together. If you are a Christian, if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus Christ, then the most natural thing in the world for you to do when you gather with God's people in worship is to overflow from the heart your praise of the king who has come to live a perfect life, who has come to be persecuted and tortured and nailed to the cross, who came to suffer hell for you, who came to breathe his last for you. The most natural thing in the world is to respond from the heart in awesome praise and adoration of this great God who condescended to such a point that you might have life because he died as you trust in him. Open your mouth in musical praise. Make music in your heart to the Lord so that others hear you and are encouraged and reminded and challenged and so that God hears you and delights in your worship. Making music with our bodies, our mouths, is not an optional activity for a Christian worshiper, nor is it relegated to those up here who are talented. It's for everybody. I've heard this from our worship leaders, from them, not me, because I'm not up here when we're singing. I've heard that it is so disheartening to look out from the stage and see some of you 
standing there, impassive, staring at a screen. Now, is it possible to worship God without opening your mouth? Yes, it is. I've had these moments when we're singing words or when God the Spirit is doing a work in my, in my heart. I can't explain it. I didn't come thinking this. And I am so overcome that all I can do is listen to you praise God for me, with me, and close my eyes and weep sometimes and worship God without making a single sound from my lips. Is that possible? Absolutely it is. If that's what's happening, praise God. But I think there are other reasons why dozens of you watch from the sidelines Sunday after Sunday as others participate in the worship of the King. I know I'm preaching some to the choir, but some not so much. Look, Baseball players throw, catch, run, swing. Kayakers paddle. Actresses play characters. Readers read. And Christians, those who have been rescued from sin and death eternally, Christians overflow with praise. We can't help ourselves overflow with emotion. Some of us, obviously, some of us very quietly. Some of us loudly, some of us softly. Some of us dramatically, some of us more reserved. I get that scope of the differences of how God has wired us. But Christians praise. We make music from our hearts to the Lord. We sing, we speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and songs of the Spirit. This is what we do, all to demonstrate that the King is worthy of our lives. Just as naturally as you would cheer at a ball game, just as naturally as you would sing along at a concert of one of your favorite artists that you've been listening to for years. So why don't you sing? By the way, if I'm being tough and direct, it's because I am convinced that a songless heart is an indicator of unhealth. I just had a a blood test for my annual physical the other day. Thankfully, the doctor called and left a message and said, everything's good. But if my, I don't know these terms, my, my blood sugar levels were high, he'd call me in, say, we need to talk. If uh, the blood pressure reading on my chart that the nurse had just taken was high, he, he would say, what's going on? We need to change something. These are indicators of unhealth. There's a strong correlation. And people of GRC, I love you too much to not say anything. Why don't you sing? Here are some possibilities. You actually don't love Jesus. You're here on Sunday but you don't desperately believe that you need his death in your place to rescue you from an eternal hell. And and these are nice religious ideas that have a place in your life, but they do not capture your heart and move you. They don't move the needle of your life. They don't fill you. What fills you controls you. How do you respond? 
Some of you would say, by the way, I'm not a believer in Jesus. I'm here because of my friend or my family member. And we don't hold this against you at all. It makes sense that you would not worship audibly because you don't believe this yet. That's perfectly fine. We're glad you're here listening in, peeking in on our life of worship, wondering what this is all about. And by the way, folks, if somebody who's not a believer is standing next to you in a songless state, what conclusion might they draw? This stuff's not that important. Doesn't mean anything to this person. Doesn't move the needle. This person's not filled, let alone controlled by these truths. But if you would say, I'm a Christian, but I don't sing, might this be true of you? You actually don't love Jesus. If you come to that realization by the work of the Spirit this morning, that is a, an act of grace on God's part to lovingly bring you to a point for you to see yourself in a, in a, in a spiritual mirror and say, oh my goodness, I think this is true of me. So consider eternity. Consider the power of sin. Consider the realities that you've heard that maybe you know that God the Son suffered hell so that you might not have to and place your faith in the Savior and grow in being filled and influenced and then controlled by these truths about Jesus. Asking yourself these questions is so much more important than your career path. Wondering how to renovate your home, let alone dinner plans this week. Here's a second possibility. You do love Jesus. You are in Christ, as Paul would say. But you're more worried about what others think of you than you're worried about what the king thinks of you. You're insecure. You have to manage your image, your facade. Fear of man is overshadowing fear of, which is reverent awe of, God. How do you respond if this is you? By the power of the Holy Spirit, you repent of your idolatry, which is putting fellow creatures in the place that the Creator Himself alone deserves. Repenting of your idolatry means recognizing I give too much attention and affection to everyone else and not enough attention and affection to the Lord of Lords. Last possibility for why you don't sing is your emotional wiring, family background, your entrenched tradition makes you very hesitant to express yourself. Singing makes you uncomfortable. How do you respond? I'd suggest you pray. I'd suggest not, not saying everything of who I am and, and of my background is evil and I need to throw it out and I need to be some wild, charismatic person. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying desire to be more of an emotional being because that's how God created you. Pray. Ask the Spirit to free your heart, to enable you to overflow more naturally like you do in other parts of life. 
as naturally as crazed fans paint their faces, link arms, jump up and down, and chant national slogans at a World Cup soccer match. Are those people funny? Do they get mocked? Or are they simply overcome with natural emotion for what grips their heart, what fills them? What's going on when we speak to one another in song about Christ, about his promises, about these eternal realities, and when we make music in our hearts to the Lord? We are following the prompting of the Holy Spirit. We're being influenced by him. We are being brought to a, a, a time and a place and a state that is so very right. This is the biblical shalom, everything that it's supposed to be. We are in our rightful place as creature before a creator. We're giving him what he alone deserves in adoration, and that cultivates a, a deeper and deeper humility in us, a sense of smallness as we adore the creator of the universe. We're not so demanding. We're not so discontent because God hasn't come through for me. We begin to think, who am I to ask anything of this great God? And we open ourselves to receive the abundant generosity that he longs to give us as a perfect father who has sacrificed his son and promises his Holy Spirit to be in you. The wonder of the gospel, people, is not that we sinful, finite creatures give glory to and adore the sinless, majestic, holy, all-powerful creator of the universe. There's, There's nothing wondrous about that. The wonder of the gospel is that God would act towards us in that way. As the prophet Zephaniah describes in one of my favorite Bible verses, the Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. The cosmic creator rejoices over me with singing? How can I not respond in praise? Let's pray. Lord, capture our hearts. Don't let us stay where we are in our selfishness, filled up with things that are not of you, filled up with things that you, perfect Father, know are for our destruction, our distraction, our cultivation of appetites for cheap substitutes. Fill us up with your Holy Spirit. Point us to Jesus Give us an appetite for everything that you know is for our flourishing. We ask it for the glory of Jesus and for the good of us, his bride. Amen.